thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. Hi, Kat. Hello there. Now, coming up, we'll be hearing how researchers have uncovered the muscle stem cell, and they say it exists in all of us, and it could be used to repair damaged or diseased muscles. Also, how scientists have found the cell that makes you fat. Sounds like good news. And scientists have also found the fastest organisms in nature. These ones are capable of nearly 100 kilometres an hour. But what are they? Well, we'll be finding out shortly, Kat. Also, under the microscope this week is the science of superbugs. We'll be uncovering the origins of drug-resistant bacteria like MRSA, finding out where Clostridium difficile came from and what makes it so evil. But it's not all bad news because we'll be hearing how researchers are fighting back with new surface coatings that can kill bacteria on contact. And we'll also be talking to the man who's at last managed to make an MRSA vaccine. Plus, we've got a rather snappy answer on the way in Question of the Week. Apparently, a shark can smell blood up to a quarter of a mile away. How does smell travel in water? It would seem strange that if you drop ink in water, it takes ages to dissipate. So how can the individual particles of a smell travel so far and apparently so fast? So that's the Naked Scientist's practical advice on how you can avoid being pursued by sharks. And it's all coming up shortly. In the meantime, if you've got a question for us, then do get in touch. Email chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. This week, scientists have made a really interesting step forward, potentially in the treatment of things like muscular dystrophy and other muscle wasting and muscle strength-sapping diseases. And this is a piece of work which has been done by Helen Blau. She's a researcher at Stanford. She's got a paper in this week's Nature. And they've come up with the cocktail of chemical markers that are found on the surfaces of cells that are muscle stem cells. Now, there's been a bit of a furore raging for many years over whether muscles really had stem cells. Some people said that the muscle you're born with has to last you a lifetime. Other people said... They didn't believe it, and they thought there were cells that could regenerate muscle if we knew how to make them work. Well... The answer is there are stem cells that can make new muscle and Helen Blau and her team have now found out how to identify those cells. They're in all muscles and they've got the particular collection of, of surface markers that you need in order to be able to uh, isolate them and also grow them. And they've done some very elegant experiments. What they've done is to collect some of these stem cells and then insert into them a gene from fireflies which makes them glow and they're able to then put those cells back into mice muscles and then using a very sensitive camera show that the cells grow in these mice so their muscles begin to glow and the cells not only add new muscle but they also produce new stem cells in other words they renew themselves and they can renew muscle and why she thinks this is very important is that it shows that if we know how to harness these cells there are umpteen different disorders that we might be able to tackle including muscle wasting as we get older people who have hip replacements and end up prone in bed for a long period of time and they can end up with muscle problems and also people who have chronic diseases like HIV or cancer. Both of these cases also lead to muscle wasting and so if we can now identify 
how we switch on these stem cells, which is what they're working on at the moment, we might be in a position to treat those problems. Now, fat, it's something that many of us do struggle with. But where does it come from? Where does it come from? Researchers in Dallas have finally tracked down the location of immature fat cells, which hide out, waiting for the extra calories that turn them into flab. Now, for a while, researchers have suspected that immature fat cells, known as fat progenitors, were hiding somewhere around the blood vessels that feed fatty tissues, but their precise location wasn't known. Now, working with mice and publishing their results in Science this week, the researchers engineered fat progenitor cells with a gene that makes them glow green under ultraviolet light so they could be followed in the body. And they discovered that these progenitor cells are embedded deep in the walls of blood vessels that run through fatty tissues, and they're actually an integral part of the blood vessel wall. Now, the researchers think that these cells are there because it enables them to sense the levels of nutrients in the blood, and when they get a whiff of the excess calories, they drift out of the blood vessels and mature into great big fat cells. And the green label that they put in them also meant that researchers could separate the immature fat cells from other cells in the tissue and grow them in the lab. So now they can study them, understand more about the mechanisms behind fat growth, what turns these progenitors into big fat monster fat cells, um, which could lead to ways to cut obesity and metabolic diseases such as diabetes. Also, though as well as just, you know, for us fatties out there, um, for people who struggle with their figures. The research could also point to ways to reactivate these immature fat cells if you get injured. Or, for example, if someone has a breast lump removed, you could maybe reactivate the fat cells in their breast to to fill in the lump after surgery. That's that's incredible Um, and a useful application. I was thinking there are other disorders, like uh, in people who take uh, drugs for HIV for a long period of time, you get a redistribution of fat around the body, a lipodystrophy, and it could be that understanding a bit more about how these cells work in that context could also be useful. It's very exciting, yeah. Now they've managed to isolate these cells, they can really get to grips with them in the lab and find out what turns them on, turns them off. Now we always have to talk about poo on the Naked Scientist. Don't know, it's usually Cat whose job it is to do that. Uh, but I've got a great story this week, which is from Nicholas Money and his team. They're at Miami University in Ohio, and they've been studying a certain kind of fungi, which turn out to be the fastest organisms in the world. These things can move would you believe it, at nearly 100 kilometres an hour. There's certain species he's been looking at are Ascomycetes and there's also Zygomycetes as well. Um, these fungi have the rather unenviable task of breaking down dung. Um, what they do is to get into a cowpat and they turn the cowpat back into nutrients that grass and other things in the soil can use and also CO2 which goes up into the atmosphere. So they're very important as pee, poo recyclers. If we didn't have them, then the whole world would drown in a sea of poo. So they're very, very useful. But they have a problem, which is that they need to get into a cow pat in order to grow. And that means that they need their spores to go through the animal that's going to deposit that cow pat so that the spore lands in its lunch, quite literally, and then it germinates and turns into the fungus in the cow pat. How do you do that? Because animals, on the whole, avoid grazing, and humans are no different, where other animals have defecated. It's mm. a protective mechanism. So what Paul Money and his team, um, Nicholas Money and his team managed to do was to work out how these fungi distribute their spores and they have the fastest guns in the west let's say what they do is they have the equivalent or the microbial equivalent of a super soaker water pistol so they have little fruiting bodies which are part of the fungus and they have collections of spores at the end of these fruiting bodies and they ship into this fruiting body lots of salts 
sugars and alcohols which cause water to be pulled in by osmosis and this causes pressure to build up no more than you'd find elsewhere in the fungus but there's something critical about the structure so that this suddenly bursts and it launches the spores from this fruiting body and they go a whopping 25 metres a second covering a distance of up to two and a half metres and the force that's expelling them is 180,000 times the acceleration due to gravity so it's a pretty impressive kick that they get to, to, to launch them out and these things are just a fraction of a millimetre across so it's an amazing feat for something so small but it solves the problem it puts the spores into a different place where a herbivore comes along, eats the grass where the spores landed, then you've got the spore in the gut and it's ready to come out with the cow pat and start the life cycle all over again. Amazing. They're, the pictures that they took, um, they say they needed a camera that took 250,000 pictures a second to do this analysis, but the pictures are so impressive, they're now going to publish them on YouTube with some sensitive music to go with, because they say they're <laughs> such a good watch. Isn't nature wonderful? Now, we all know that the days of fossil fuels are limited, so researchers are trying to find alternative fuels. Biofuels have risen in popularity in recent years, and that's fermenting plant material to make ethanol. That's already being used to produce fuel in several countries around the world. But chemically speaking, ethanol is a long way away from petrol, gasoline for our US listeners, and the diesel that's currently used in car engines, in jet planes and so on. The problem is, is that plant sugars that you make ethanol from have lots and lots of oxygen atoms in them, which aren't really found in fuels like gasoline. They sort of make lower grade fuels. Now, scientists at the University of Wisconsin-Madison have developed a biofuel that's identical at the molecular level to gasoline. This sounds absolutely brilliant. Uh, writing in the journal Science, the researchers have found a technique for turning these complex plant sugars called lignocellulose into molecules that can be upgraded through chemical reactions to make petrol, diesel, jet fuel and so on. And they do this by turning the plant sugars into molecules with fewer oxygen atoms, which can then be converted, stuck together to make high-octane gasoline. So to create these new starter molecules, the scientists add a solid catalyst to the solution of plant sugars. Reaction takes place and this kind of oil-like substance is produced that floats up to the top of the liquid, can be just skimmed off. And inside this are uh, acids, alcohols, ketones, all these molecules that have less oxygen to start with than the sugars, but are the precursors to gasoline. Then you do some more reactions, string them together to make gasoline. And it's a much more efficient way of using these plant sugars for biofuels. Uh, the oil that the team have made retains around 90% of the energy content of the original sugars, so that's very, very good conversion rate. Um, although this technique's still really at an experimental stage, perhaps it could solve our oil crisis in the future. It certainly sounds exciting, Cab, but is it scalable? What I mean by that is it's one thing to do a reaction in a test tube, it's another to take it to the fuel pump. Exactly. Is is it scalable? Um, it's still, well, at the moment they're still doing it in quite a small scale in the lab, but uh, I'm, I'm sure these guys are very smart guys who are really into into their biofuels, so hopefully we'll find a way in the well, future. Well, a very strong motivator is price, of course, and petrol, I know the price has come down a bit, but the price is still incredibly high, and people are saying that we're on the downward slope now where oil reserves are getting harder to find, not easier. As a result, prices are only really in the long term going to rise, so there's a strong motivation to do this kind of thing. Absolutely, I can't keep affording to pay the petrol to come up here every week. Don't say that, we need you. <laughs> Thanks, Kat. Now, some bacterial infections, and this week we're talking about bacterial infections and superbugs in hospitals on The Naked Scientist, but some bacterial infections like E. coli 0157, which is a cause of food poisoning, can also damage your kidneys, for example. They seem paradoxically to get a lot worse when you give patients antibiotics 
instead of getting better. And it seems that this is because the bacteria enter a sort of high alert state in response to the treatment, and so they fight back by becoming a lot more virulent. But now researchers at Southwestern Medical Center at the University of Texas have come up with a drug that can stop these bacteria from sensing the chemicals in your body that tell the bacteria your body's gearing up to fight them. And Dr. Vanessa Sperandio is in Dallas, and she joins us now to tell us about this bit of research. Hello, Vanessa. Hello, Chris. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. So how do bacteria actually manage to, to home in on the fact that we're onto them? Well, uh, they sense two stress hormones that you have, adrenaline and noradrenaline, and they use those two hormones as cues to know that they're inside of you. And when they sense that a receptor in the bacteria, they activate production of their virulence traits. And by doing that, they can actually make you sick and turn on everything that will cause disease. It's intriguing to think that these bacteria are eavesdropping on our own inflammatory signals. They've learned, or evolved, I should say, to detect the signals our body uses to fight them. Yes, and those are very uh, primal type of uh, signals because that's at the core of your immune system and it's the core of gauging how, how, well, how healthy or not you really are and how stressed you are. So how did you get a handle on what the bacteria were doing and, and then try to work out how to stop them? So we figured out uh, many years ago that they were using the signals, and then in 2006 we were able to identify one of the bacterial receptors for the signals. And what we've done now is to develop drugs that will bind to the bacterial receptor and prevent the receptor from seeing the host stress hormones. And in this way, the bacteria passes blindly through the host without being able to know where it is and activate its virulence traits. Oh, I see. So you've managed to come up with a drug molecule that can block up the ability of the bacteria to see adrenaline or noradrenaline, so the bacteria don't effectively know they're in the body. Yes. So how could this molecule be used, and is it safe? Uh, so far, the molecule is safe. Of course, this isn't the level of proof of principle. We did do some preliminary toxicology in mice, and so far it looks to be safe. It also does not... Uh, uh, signal to human adrenergic receptors, which is important. Uh, and it can be used either to treat infections or hopefully we also want to try to use this to prevent infections. And which sorts of bacteria will be vulnerable to this? Because you've done tests on a number of different classes of bacteria, but where do you see it actually being most useful? So it can be used, uh, very useful for something like E. coli 157, which right now has no treatment. Uh, we also uh, did the, uh, looked into this drug to treat salmonella infections, which can cause gastroenteritis and typhoid fever. We looked into tularemia, which is a biotreat agent. And in between those bacteria, there are several important pathogens that actually have this sensor. And so this could be used, hopefully, to treat some nosocomial infections, especially for patients in uh, ventilators because uh, bacteria like Klebsiella, Cynetobacter, and Pseudomonas, who are important in this class of patients, which um, are, do not have a lot of treatments and antibiotics against, and are quite resilient to antibiotic treatment, uh, they all possess the signaling system. And just to finish off, when do you think that we might be seeing this going into humans in clinical trials? Uh, we're, we're planning, we got money from the uh, National Institutes of Health, NIH, to develop these drugs to preclinical in five years, which means in five years we want to be able to have everything preclinically, toxicology and safety done, 
and hopefully in five years to start the first uh, phase trials in humans. Thank you, Vanessa. That's Dr. Vanessa Sperandio, who is from UT Southwestern, and she's been looking into ways to stop bacteria from sensing our own biological attack, which is how they know we're onto them. Maybe not for much longer. Stripping down science. <laughs> the Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and Kat Arney. Do not forget that we also beam this programme live into Second Life every Sunday from 6pm UK time. That's 10am Second Life time. And there's a great group of avatars there. They chat about the science in the show, all sorts of things. So if you want to join them, go and visit the Scilands, search for The Naked Scientists. You can drop by our palace and relax on one of our sun lounges, listen to the show. Last week it was a mansion, Kat. This week you oh, made a palace. Uh, People yeah. are going to expect great things. Exactly, exactly. It'll be a cathedral next week. And while you're online, why not tell us how we can make the show even better? Um, you know, we get here from you all the time that we're doing a great job, but yeah, I'm sure there's things that you'd like us to do better. So um, tell us what you'd like or dislike about the show with our survey at www.thenakedscientist.com slash survey. Thank you, Kat. And of course, the one thing to mention is that we're live on a Sunday evening. So if you do want to check out uh, what we're up to in the Silands, you have to go to Second Life on Sunday evening, UK time, 6pm. Well, time now for a bit of kitchen science, and it seems that Ben and Dave must have brought too many potatoes because last week Dave had you impaling them with a straw. I remember Dr Cat wasn't terribly good at that the first time she tried, but improved enormously towards the end of the programme. But this week we're going to see how spuds can speed up chemical reactions. For this week's kitchen science, Dave Antle has brought me to an abandoned car park behind Cambridge University's Cavendish Labs. Now, it's quite an industrial-looking area. There are big cans of liquid nitrogen behind us. I have a feeling that Dave has got something really quite exciting planned, but, Dave, you've just got out a bottle of something and a potato. What on earth are we doing? Well, what I've got here is some hydrogen peroxide. Hydrogen peroxide is a bit like water, but instead of H2O, it's H2O2. And I have a potato. Isn't hydrogen peroxide the stuff you use to bleach your hair to make you go blonde? Yeah, that's exactly the stuff. It's also in contact lens cleaner. How does it actually work? Well, the second oxygen atom in the hydrogen peroxide makes it very reactive and it can oxidise all sorts of chemicals. Now, coloured chemicals are very, very susceptible to this oxidation, so they tend to get destroyed very quickly. Things lose their colour, so they get bleached. But today we're looking at how things can affect the speed of a reaction. So what's the speed of a reaction got to do with hair bleach? I've got a little experiment here which should give you an idea of what's going on. So first of all, I'm going to pour out some of this hydrogen peroxide. Okay, so we're just pouring it into a glass jar. Is this stuff that people can get their hands on at home? You can get hold of it, but if you do try and do this experiment at home, which I'm not going to tell you to do, be careful because you're essentially playing with bleach, which is quite nasty stuff, and you really don't want to get it in your eyes. We don't want to get it in our eyes, but you just said this is the stuff we used to clean contact lenses with. That's a much more dilute solution, so it's a lot less nasty. Okay, so we're pouring some into this jar. Now, I can't see anything happen. As you said, it it looks like water. There is a very, very, very slow reaction going on here where the hydrogen peroxide, H2O2, is breaking down into water, H2O, and some oxygen, O2. So the hydrogen peroxide itself is actually quite unstable, and even without us doing anything, it breaks down into water and oxygen. Yeah, that's right. But now what I'm going to do is take a couple of slices of potato and put that in. We're putting a slice of ordinary, uncooked baking potato into our jar of hydrogen peroxide. I can't see anything happening there. At the moment, it still just looks like potato in water. Oh, but now it is starting to fizz. Not a great deal, but there's certainly a layer of foam forming on the top. Dave, what should we be seeing? 
Well, this foam is the oxygen gas which is released when hydrogen peroxide breaks down, but it's being released far, far quicker when we add the potato. So just adding potato to the hydrogen peroxide makes it break down quicker and actually makes the reaction happen a bit faster? Yes, because inside the potato there's an enzyme that acts as a catalyst to break down the hydrogen peroxide. Now, I've heard of catalysts before. They are the things that speed up reactions without themselves being used up. So you get them in catalytic converters that help to clean your petrol fumes. Yeah, that's right. They speed up the reaction between carbon monoxide, which is really quite poisonous, and oxygen to form carbon dioxide, amongst various other things. So they're obviously very useful in making car fumes safer, but surely you don't have to put enzymes in your car. No, enzymes are biological molecules, and in the environment, in the exhaust pipe of a car, they get breaking down very quickly. What you do instead is use metals like platinum, which act as a very good catalyst as well. So how do enzymes make a reaction faster? Well, amongst other things, for a reaction to happen between two molecules, you need the two molecules to hit each other, and you need the two molecules to hit each other in the right orientation. Now, this can be quite difficult, especially for large molecules, and what enzymes often do is hold the two molecules in the right orientation so they can then crash into each other and react much, much faster than they would do without the enzyme. So having the enzyme there makes sure that the active bits of the molecules come together and we definitely get a reaction. Yeah, that's right. And actually, if you look now at the jar, you'll see it's filled up with foam. It's about half full of foam now. The potato almost looks like it's been boiling in there for a while. This isn't the kind of foam you get from boiling it. This is actually full of oxygen. And because oxygen speeds up burning reactions hugely, we should be able to see that. So just like I did in chemistry at school, we should light a bit of wood and then blow it out so that it's just glowing embers. And if we put it in the jar, then if it is oxygen in there, it should light again. Is that right? Yep, that's the plan. Okay, let's get this lit. So this is now burning. I'll just blow it out so it's just glowing gently. I put it into the foam. Wow! As soon as that got near the foam, the bubbles burst and the glowing spill just burst into flames again. So that proves that that is breaking down to oxygen. We're definitely getting the reaction we wanted. And the fact that there's quite a lot there shows that that's happened quite quickly. Yeah, that's right. And if we hadn't added the potato, would there actually be enough oxygen in there to get it relit? Nothing like enough, no. OK, so potato is very good at speeding up a reaction. What else is good for it? You've already said that platinum, but I don't have any platinum to spare. What else can we try? We can try other biological materials, and one which I've heard is really quite good is liver. OK, so we will come back to you later on in the show to let you know quite how good liver is at speeding up a reaction. And we've got a fairly explosive way of showing it. We'll be back later in the show. There'll be some fiery stuff coming on later. So hair bleach, hydrogen peroxide, it breaks down to water and oxygen and popping a little bit of spud in speeds up the reaction. And we're going to be hearing more about catalysts later on in the show when we talk to Joe Verron about how to use catalysts to beat bacteria. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. Today's show here on The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and Katani is all about superbugs. And still to come, we'll be hearing about the developments towards making a vaccine for MRSA, which is obviously a well-known hospital infection worldwide. But the new kid on the bacterial block, as it were, this week, and also for the last few years, is an organism called Clostridium difficile. It's better known to most of us and people who look at the headlines in the paper as C. diff. 
and it can cause severe diarrhoea, which is not something you really want to have when you're trying to recover from some surgeries. But it's killing about 7,000 people every single year, and the numbers are going up. Just a few years ago, we hardly really had a problem with it at all. So what's the issue here? Well, Dr. Sani Aliu, he's a, hospi- he's a hospital uh, consultant at Addenbrooke's, which is one of Cambridge University's teaching hospitals, and he's with us this evening. Hi, Sani. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Oh, hello, Chris. So, C. diff, what actually is it? Well, Clostridium difficile is a gram-positive um, anaerobic organism. By anaerobic, I mean it doesn't really like um, oxygen. Um, it produces spores. And um, when it vegetates, in other words, when it pro- proliferates, um, it produces toxins that, that, that cause quite severe damage to the large bowel. Um, so sometimes you can have patients coming in um, for one reason or the other, end up on antibiotics and um, end up having disinfection. Where do we tend to get it from then? Does everyone carry C. diff? Well, no. It, as an organism, it's quite ubiquitous. In other words, it survives in, in the environment. The spores themselves are quite hardy organisms, so you can acquire them from uh, from the normal environment as well as from domestic animals and farm animals. But more frequently, it tends to be in hospitals because you have patients that already have disinfection and they're producing a lot of the organism and are contaminating the environment and uh, patients can easily pick up the infection from that. Is it just gut infections it causes, or can it also get to other bits of the body? Well, predominantly gut infections. What happens is the toxin produces um, a lot of inflammation within the gut, and as a result, it can result in quite severe damage to the bowel, uh, perforation, um, dehydration, severe diarrhoea, and subsequently end-organ damage, including death. And it's because it's triggering diarrhoea, I presume, that it's so actually easy for it to spread because, of course, it's making people go to the toilet a lot. So every time they go to the loo, they're, sh- they're shedding more of these tiny spores into the environment. Absolutely. A- and that makes it very hard to treat. Absolutely. Um, patients with diarrhoea can excrete as much as up to a million bacteria per gram of faeces. So it's, it's quite, um, it can be quite profuse, really. And once you've got the spores coming out into, say, a hospital ward or, or toilet, um, how do you get rid of them? Well, predominantly by by good cleaning, really. Um, The spores themselves, as I said earlier, are quite hardy organisms, but we know that they respond, um, they're quite sensitive to chlorine-based products. Um, Using alcohol, for instance, alcohol gel in in hospitals wouldn't wouldn't really get rid of the spores. And why is it mainly old people who tend to suffer with this? Why is it people our age? I know that we obviously, as a percentage of the population, there's fewer of us lot in hospital, but when you look at people in hospital, the the proportion of old people getting C. diff is is usually higher. Is that just because they're more vulnerable anyway? Well, yes. As as you get older, your normal immune system really doesn't work that well. And um, as a result, it means when you acquire the organism, when you ingest the organism as a young person, your immune system will probably be able to keep the infection at bay. Um, at the same time, we know about the concept of colonization resistance. In other words, you have bacteria in the large bowel that tend to protect you against acquiring the organism. But as you get older, this resistance isn't really as, as good as it should be. So in other words, your, your body's own bacteria effectively take up all the available space. There's nowhere for the C. diff to fit in. But if you kill those bacteria with a dose of antibiotics, or just because that, that bacterial flora changes with age anyway... It makes openings or niches that C. diff can then get into more easily. Yes. Um, in fact, the the normal bowel, bowel flora, as we call it, um, prevents the overgrowth with Clostridium difficile by depriving the organism of uh, micronutrients, particularly carbon micronutrients, which means it can't really establish infe- an infection. And in terms of why it's such a problem now, because 10 years ago it was 
a few cases. Now we've got 7,000 deaths a year. So why is the graph going up exponentially like that? What's happening? Well, it's partly due to improved reporting. Over the last few years, um, we've put in place mandatory reporting processes, which means that if you have a case of C. difficile, you have to report it. The the testing has also changed. In the past, we only used to test in individuals that are above the age of 65, but nowadays any anybody having diarrhea above the age of two. And then you you have a more virulent strain that first um, emerged in Canada about five years ago and has since then started occupying more and more of the niche that used to be occupied by the more fairly sensitive um, strains. When you say more virulent, what, what do you mean by that? More virulent in terms of um, producing more toxin, causing more diarrhea, causing more severe illness and probably more deaths as well. Do we know why this has come about? Is it just because it, it was a random mutation, it's appeared, and because it was so much more prolific um, in terms of its production of diarrhoea and its ability to spread that it just went all over the world? I think it's it's fairly different from other strains of um, um, Clostridium difficile in that um, it has a deletion in the gene. There's a gene that negatively regulates toxin production and this particular ribotype called the 027 ribotype has a deletion in that gene which means that it can produce much more toxin and can germinate for a longer period of time than other ribotypes of um, of Clostridium difficile. So therefore you tend to have more spread as well, more environmental contamination um, as a result of more severe disease. And what, Sani, can we do about it? Well, in the first place, we can we can restrict antibiotic use. Um, a lot of times, uh, we use a lot of antibiotics in the community as well as in hospitals that we probably don't really need. That's one. Secondly, we by improving cleaning, making sure that you interrupt the transmission process um, from from patient to patient either by washing our hands, making sure we wash our hands, isolating patients quite promptly, putting them inside rooms, um, avoiding contamination of um, hospital equipment, that will go a very long way to, to reduce the infection. And lastly, how long do you think it's going to take before we get a handle on this problem and can bring it under control? I think we will. It might probably take another... Um, being on the, on the optimistic side, probably another five years or so, we, we, there are new things coming up like vaccines, for instance, which we hope um, very very soon in the next few years we'll probably have, and that in a way would probably reduce um, the incidence of infection. But uh, we're having new agents as well coming in, which um, at the moment um, look quite promising. Thank you, Sani. That's Sani Aliu. He's a consultant at Adam Brooks Hospital. He'll be with us for the rest of the programme. So if you've got any questions about C. diff or other hospital superbugs, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Don't forget that Ben and Dave will be demonstrating the power of chopped liver in the second part of our kitchen science. And coming up very soon, we'll hear from Diana O'Carroll how sharks can pick up the taste of your blood in seawater. But now, whether or not bacteria stick around in your home or local hospital isn't always down to chemical conditions or cleaning. Sometimes it's the microscopic structure of the surface that you're cleaning that dictates whether you'll manage to get the bugs off. And if we can understand better how bacteria stick to surfaces, we could make food factories, bathrooms, kitchens and hospitals much cleaner. So a team at Manchester Metropolitan University have been looking into this and uh, Joanna, Professor Joanna Verran joins us now. Hello. Hi, hi. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. Thank you. So let's look at the root of this problem. Why is, you know, a wipe down with a bit of bleach not enough to get rid of bacteria? Well, I think if you think of the surfaces that you're, you're wiping, they may well not be particularly smooth so the bugs can get wedged in... Um, defects and scratches and it's easy, it's not so easy to get them off that way. And 
So these surfaces, they've got some... How big are the scratches? Because most surfaces look fairly smooth. What size are we talking about? Well, a typical bacterium, um, a cockal bacterium, is about one micrometre across. That's a thousandth of a millimetre. So the sorts of scratches that we're looking at are around about that sort of size. Um, sometimes if the scratches are huge, I mean, the bacteria come out of them fairly easily because... Uh, They've got nowhere to stick, but if they can wedge their little bums in the little scratches, then it means that they're holding on and it's harder to get them out. Now, is there a difference in the types of surfaces? Surfaces can be made of all sorts of things. Are there there any that particularly harbour bacteria that you've found? Well, I think um, softer surfaces, ones which scratch more easily, are going to get more rough and therefore get uh, harder to clean. But um, hygienic surfaces like stainless steel are actually quite hard and they don't scratch particularly badly. And what we've shown is actually if if, um, stainless steel surfaces wear, it doesn't really make it harder to get the bugs off of those. Part of the problem with them as well, though, is that food material and other material gets stuck in the cracks too. So again, it It helps the surfaces retain soil and that helps the bacteria stick to them. So it's not just trying to get the bugs off, it's actually making sure that you get all the organic material off as well. And I know that one of the things you're really interested in is titanium. Tell me about titanium and how you're trying to use it to fight off bacteria. Uh, Well, there's uh, one aspect of titanium we've been looking at is nano-titanium. And this isn't so much as uh, on our hygienic surfaces, but it's a a photocatalyst. So as you've been talking about earlier with reactive molecules, um, nano-titanium is very small particles of titanium dioxide. And when light shines on it... um, it activates the the titanium dioxide and um, particles are released from the surface. And these particles react with things like oxygen and form extra active superoxide molecules and they hit the bacteria and start to break down bacteria. But these um, active molecules can also break down organic compounds as well. So they are called photoactive surfaces, light activated. So they're essentially self-cleaning? That's right, and, and there are quite a few self-cleaning surfaces with nanotitanium in them already. Um, there are glass and there are lots of ceramic tiles, but we were looking at paint formulations particularly. We were interested in seeing whether we could get paint formulations that you could just paint indoors, which would be activated by fluorescent light, and seeing whether they would kill... We were looking at E. coli, actually, Escherichia coli. Not 0157. Because I, I know that many paints do already have titanium dioxide in. Is, is that not kind of special enough? Do ordinary paints not work in this way? Um, titanium has got different, uh, different functions. So some of the larger, molecule, larger titanium particles are just pigments. So it's white. So titanium dioxide is often used in paints and cosmetics, toothpastes. Um, but we're looking at the nano-titanium because that, uh, those smaller molecules, it's um, a better photocatalyst. And would that be very expensive, though? I mean, it it sounds like a fantastic idea if you can paint this paint indoors. It's activated by normal fluorescent lights. Is it going to be too pricey to be practical? Um, I don't really know what the prices might be, I'm afraid. Um, We've started looking, we look particularly at E. coli, and the reason that we started with E. coli is because that's where um, standard tests for testing how good these antibacterial properties are. Um, But you would want to then look at other microorganisms as well and see whether you've got a a broader spectrum of activity, but um, I'm afraid I don't know anything about the prices of them. (laughs) Well, maybe that's something to look into. Well, thanks very much for talking to us. That was Professor Joanna Verrant joining us from Manchester Metropolitan University. So maybe a bit more thought about the materials our hospitals are painted with and made from could cut the risk of acquiring an infection on the ward.
Thank you, Kat. Um, Sally, you've got a couple of quick questions related to hospital infections and things. First of all, John in Colchester says it's all very well, um, hospital staff washing their hands with alcoholic gel and such like, but has anyone thought of having a mat covered with, say, hydrogen peroxide to sterilise footwear as well? Is that an issue? Well, when you look at the issue of um, contamination in hospitals and transfer of organism, particularly in relation to C. difficile, we know that most of the contamination comes from patients that are already infected with, 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 with the infection, um, with the disease, with the organism, the spread of the organism. So the crucial thing really is to make sure that you clean, you clean the surfaces, you clean the sites where you, 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 you touch quite frequently um, by healthcare workers, and you also isolate the patient who's symptomatic. It's less of an issue in terms of people bringing it in. You're not going to bring it in with your um, from from the community um, on your on your footwear, for instance. So, uh, Maggie says, will ordinary soap work against the kinds of germs you might pick up both at home and, and in the hospital? Ordinary soap will help because you're trying to reduce the disease, the the amount, the the burden of infection on your hands. So. Ordinary soap will help. Certainly in terms of C. difficile, ordinary soap will help because we know even when you finish washing your hands, um, that this is talking outside the C. difficile spectrum in, in terms of MRSA infection, for instance. If you use the alcohol hand gel, if you haven't really washed your hand and you have a lot of debris, the alcohol hand gel is not going to work. So yes, um, using soap and water is definitely um, um, a good thing. Because there's the physical detachment of exactly. organisms by yeah. placing your hands and then having friction under running water helps yes. to, we know that helps to knock them off, doesn't it? Um, Mark, Mark in Dunstable says, in the old days, diarrhoea used to be treated with laudanum. Um, that's, of course, a, an, a morphine-like agent, isn't it? So the basis of that, I presume, is just that it treated the symptoms, not actually the cause. So it probably would make C. diff worse, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Um, with C. difficile, you really want the toxin and the bacteria out of your system. So you don't really want to give a, a drug that would um, help the toxin to stay input and um, cause more damage. And that toxin, just tell us, Sani, how does it work and why is it bad for your guts? The toxin works by inducing quite an intense inflammation. Clostridium difficile produces two types of toxins, uh, toxin A and toxin B, and these latch onto receptors and uh, simulate uh, production of inflammatory mediators called cytokines. And this causes quite an intense inflammation with cell death and subsequent necrosis and breakdown of the normal um, barrier uh, that you, you, you find in, in the large bowel. And so that presumably means that only, you'll not only lose uh, fluid from the body, but you may also have an access point for other nasty bacteria to get in as well. Yes, and you might actually perforate your bowel. Which is very nasty, which is why we need to find an answer to this. Thank you, Sani. It is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. We're talking about superbugs and other ways to tackle bacterial problems. If you'd like to join in with the show, if you've got a question for us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. The bacterium methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, which we most of us better know as MRSA, has been the big villain of hospital-acquired infections. It's resistant to common antibacterial drugs, and it seems to infect otherwise healthy people, and it's also spread out from hospitals into the community. It's a big problem because you can keep catching Staph aureus many times throughout your life, but now scientists in Boston have spotted a chink in its armour, and that means there's potentially a way to make a vaccine. Here's Jerry Peer. He's at Harvard Medical School. The major work has been on infections caused by bacteria, 
we've focused on two specific types, Staphylococcus aureus, of which one form is MRSA, and another organism called Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a quite common organism. It's found uh, in water, but fortunately, only in certain situations does it really cause a bad infection. Why is Staph and MRSA such a problem? It's a little bit difficult to say why it has become a bigger problem recently. Some of the issues seem to be just greater exposure. More people seem to be carrying MRSA. It's basically, for years and years and years, was pretty much only found in people in the hospital. Now it's clearly out in people in the community, so it's spreading more. How many people have got it? About 30% of people carry Staphylococcus aureus in their nose. A smaller percentage, maybe around 2 to 5%, carry MRSA. But that's more than it used to be. So even though that sounds like a small number, when you think of all the people out there, it's really a large number of people overall. So what are you doing to try and stop that? One of the factors that has been very useful in making vaccines has been to extract the materials that bacteria put out on their outer surface. And that allows us to immunize individuals and get immune responses, usually antibodies, that can cause the bacteria to be killed. So we've discovered that there is a specific type of surface material. It's actually a sugar molecule. Scientists call it a polysaccharide that if we chemically change it somewhat, it causes a very good immune response, and those antibodies are then capable of killing the staph and preventing infections or perhaps limiting infections so that they don't become as severe. So what you're saying is that people who don't have this vaccine, there's something about the surface of the staph that stops you making an effective immune response normally? Correct. It turns out that One of the ways that bacteria avoid causing an immune response that would kill them is to trick your body, if you will, into making the wrong kinds of antibodies. So the bacteria don't care that you have those antibodies because they don't harm the bacteria. So our job has been to try and figure out how to get the right kinds of antibodies that will kill the bacteria. Do you know how they thwart the immune system in that way? It's a little bit complicated because it involves looking at this very detailed structure of this sugar molecule that coats the bacteria. But in general, what we find is that the sugar molecule has projections from the sides, and those projections are involved in causing the non-killing or bad antibodies to form. And those antibodies then, they bind to the bacteria okay, but they don't cause other factors of the immune system to stick to the bacteria, and these other factors are essential for killing. So it's the structure of this sugar molecule overall that gets the wrong kinds of antibodies mostly made. And what we've done is we've changed the structure so we get antibodies that then bring in these other factors that are needed to kill the bacteria. And so you're just injecting people not with bacteria but with the chemicals from the surface of the bacteria that drive this response? Well, so far we've only injected mice, rabbits and monkeys, although 
we're fortunate that there is movement towards making this into a human vaccine and optimistically would hope perhaps within two or three years we'll see our first humans immunized with this material. So it's going in the right direction, but so far we only have data from animals. Will the same chemical trick work on other infections? Because it's not just staph that make us ill, is it? Well, we're fairly optimistic that that is the case. We've shown with our laboratory studies that the same vaccine can be effective against uh, E. coli, which is also another common cause of infections in the hospital. The bacteria that causes whooping cough also makes this. The organism that causes plague makes it. And then there's a lot of other organisms that have become quite problematic in the hospital setting because they're very resistant to the antibiotic drugs that we commonly use to treat infections. And in some cases, we don't have any antibiotics at all. And we're hoping our vaccine or perhaps antibodies we make in the lab might be effective against these microbes as well. Do you think there's any risk that the bacteria could, once you start treating large numbers of people with this, could become resistant because bacteria change very rapidly. They've become resistant to lots of antibiotics. Could they thwart your vaccine? This is always a possibility. What one tries to do when you make a vaccine is to make it out of something that the organism has to have. And if it stops making it, then it can no longer cause infections. In our laboratory studies, we've shown that if Staphylococcus doesn't make this material, it's much less able to cause an infection. So we're hoping that'll be the case, but we're still a ways away from really knowing that with any certainty. So a vaccine to prevent MRSA could be just about about round the corner by blocking the bacteria's ability to fool our defences. Let's hope so. That was Jerry Peer, and he's a researcher at Harvard Medical School. Time for our question of the week with Diana O'Carroll. And Diana, we have an email here from your mum. Oh, no. <laughs> Who says hello. Hello, and mum. She, and she also says that she thinks it's time we had Schrodinger's cat as a kitchen science experiment. So That's I really think we'll good. Get yeah, ben she, and Dave on It means our audience like has gone from much. one to two. It's great. Sorry. <laughs> Are are they really out there? (laughs) Well, thanks, Mum. Uh, Anyway, back to question of the week. Um, uh, We've got quite a smelly question for you guys now. My name's Vince Mills from uh, Sully Hull in the West Midlands. Apparently, a shark can smell blood up to a quarter of a mile away. How does smell travel in water? It would seem strange that if you drop ink in water, it takes ages to dissipate. So how can the individual particles of a smell travel so far and apparently so fast? So how can a shark really smell when dinner's on the table? My name is Thomas Breithaupt and I'm lecturer in ecology at the University of Hull. Vince is absolutely right in questioning the scenario in wildlife programs where sharks apparently are attracted from a distance within a very short time after some smelly substance has been dumped in the ocean. Water molecules in general are carried to the shark by water currents. If there are no water currents, then it is molecular diffusion, the random movement of molecules that disperses the odor away from the source. But diffusion is an extremely slow process, as Vince experienced in his ink experiment. In general, the travel time of odor depends entirely on the local water velocity. Near the water surface, water velocities in the ocean can range between a few centimeters per second on a very calm day and several meters per second in a strong current. In summary, odor can theoretically be detected by a shark over several miles from the source, and I would estimate that in the ocean a smell takes at least one minute to reach the shark at a distance of 100 meters. More likely, it will need between 10 and 20 minutes. Finally, the shark still needs to get to the source, and that would take another 10 to 100 seconds, depending on the swim speed of the shark. 
So if smelly things are dumped into the ocean, don't expect a shark to be attracted from a distance in less than a few minutes. So a shark finds its dinner before it gets cold, but perhaps not as fast as some documentaries and films might have you believe. Still, the shark is definitely the bloodhound of the sea world. A minute is still pretty fast, isn't it? Uh, Well, here's something else that can creep up on you pretty quickly. It's surplus hair. I'm Andrew Steer from Cambridge. Why is it that eyebrows tend to grow quite long in elderly people? So if you know why you start getting extra hair in all the wrong places as you get older, or if you'd like to submit a question of your own, then send us an email to chris at thenakedscientist.com or alternatively, you can write your thoughts on our forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thank you, Diana. I see you've taken to cutting your eyebrows. <laughs> Could be because you're going <laughs> you're getting years. in the way. <laughs> Thank you, Diana. That's Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week. And the forum she's referring to is our web-based discussion forum. There are people from all over the world there, and they're experts in lots of different subjects, and people just put questions on there and then answer other people's questions. It's a really friendly community, so if you want to join in, any science question goes, then you just go to nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat and now it's time to get back to Ben and Dave to see how they've decided to test out how effective chopped liver is at catalysing chemical reactions and as they warned us in the first part of today's Kitchen Science, it could be explosive. Welcome back to this week's Kitchen Science. Today we're looking at how catalysts can make reactions go much quicker than they would do otherwise. So far we've seen how slices of potato contain enzymes that can make the breakdown of hydrogen peroxide happen really quickly. And now Dave has something a little special for us. So Dave, you said in the first part that we're going to try liver. Now what are you expecting? Well, liver has a particularly high concentration of this enzyme catalase. There's catalase in many biological systems, especially cells, and it's there because hydrogen peroxide is a byproduct of various metabolic processes. These are reactions which give you energy. And hydrogen peroxide is a poison. It'll damage chemicals at random in your body, which is a really, really bad thing to be happening. I'm not at all surprised that hair bleach is not, in fact, good for you inside your system. Exactly. And your liver is a part of your body which is used for soaking up a lot of the toxins and getting rid of them. So the liver has a particularly high concentration of enzymes for doing that, particularly catalase. So we're expecting that the liver will make the reaction go very, very quickly if there's so much catalase in there. But we've already seen that when we put potato and hydrogen peroxide in a jar, we saw that it bubbled up a bit and we could light a spill from it. Are we just going to do the same thing again but with liver? We could do, but a guy who I know who does lots of great hands-on science stuff called Ian Russell has a rather interesting experiment which I've always wanted to try out. And this is putting the hydrogen peroxide in a lemonade bottle, chucking in some liver and then putting a cork in the end, turning it upside down and running away. <laughs> so will this work a bit like the bottle rockets that we did a couple of weeks ago? Yes, it's exactly the same thing. The hydrogen peroxide will give oxygen, which will increase the pressure inside the bottle until eventually the bung will get pushed out the bottom and the bottle should fly upwards. <laughs> well, if you want to try one of those out at home, just go to thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science and there's full instructions and some fantastic video footage of how to make your own bottle rocket at home. But this doesn't sound like something people should do at home, Dave. No, essentially you're pressurising bleach in a lemonade bottle, so I'm wearing gloves and goggles and a good coat to keep it off me. Don't try this at home. (laughs) I will keep my distance. Okay, Dave, so how are you actually going to do it? Basically, I've got a bottle here with some hydrogen peroxide and a bit of water. 
I'm then going to very carefully push a load of liver into the top of it, trying not to get it into the hydrogen peroxide for as long as possible. I'm going to jam a bung in the top with a little platform attached to it, turn upside down, and then run away. <laughs> OK, well, the running away bit sounds good to me. I'm just going to pop the liver in, and you probably want to get out of the way. OK, all right. OK, then, Dave. I can see Dave now from about 10 metres away, and he's very carefully putting the liver in and he has a bung on a board which he's using as our launch pad he's popped the bung into the bottle i don't think the liver's hit the peroxide yet he's turning it over and he's running this way (laughs) but it's certainly starting to foam up dave i'm glad you could make it this far so am i to be honest it's filling with foam i can see it from here yay That was brilliant, Dave. That got a good, what, 15, nearly 20 foot into the air? That sounds about right, yes. <laughs> and all based on the power of hair bleach and liver. Well, that's all we have for Kitchen Science this week. We better go and clear up some of the livery, bleachy mess that we've made. And we'll be back with you very soon. That is, is it not, the best kitchen science experiment ever, the liver-powered rocket. As Ben said, you can find out how to make a safer version of a bottle rocket at home on our website, and that's thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science. We have also put some videos up of the liver-powered rocket for your delectation and delight. Yes, that's nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. You can see the real videos, including high-speed footage, because Dave has got a high-speed camera, 4,000 pictures a second or something ridiculous, and you can see this thing, individual blobs of liver spurting out (laughs) as the fuel accelerating this rocket up into the air. An amazing demonstration of Isaac Newton's third principle. So thank you very much to Ben and Dave for this week's wonderful kitchen science experiment. Now, on the same sort of note... A baker racer who's listening to us in Second Life said, could bananas be used as a catalyst instead of liver? I guess some, the, the natural thing about bananas is that they're full of proteases, so they've got their own catalytic activity because they break down protein. But I think they do have a bit of catalase activity, but definitely not as much as liver. Test it, find liver. out, tell us. The other thing you wanted to know is, do you think that a liver from different species could be better for doing this experiment? Because Dave obviously went for um, genuine offal. Um, could another species have a better liver? I reckon it might be, but I reckon the differences might not be very big. You probably wouldn't see it. Well, I guess that means you'll have to go home and try it. <laughs> Contact lens fluid liver. and some liver. Right, well, it is The Naked Scientist, and we have been talking about the science of superbugs this week, and we've got lots of questions coming in now. So let's kick off, first of all. Um, Professor Joe Verron is with us from Manchester Metropolitan University, and we've got a question here from Olga Arby, who's in Second Life, who says, Joe, why do bacteria stick so well to plastic surfaces? Because you were talking about chopping boards earlier, so why do you think this is? Well, if you don't mind, I'd have to go back a little bit um, and, and talk about uh, bugs on surfaces generally. Bacteria generally in the, on the planet live attached onto surfaces. Most of them are attached onto surfaces, so it's where they would rather be. So if you had bacteria in your mouth, um, if you swallowed them, they'd die. But if they stick to your teeth, it's much better for them. So it's the best place for them to be is attached to a surface, so they'll happily stick to lots of different surfaces. In the, in the food industry and where we've been talking about surfaces in hospitals, you're just looking at survival of organisms that have stuck onto the surfaces. Perhaps they've been put there by people touching them or with a chopping board they've come into contact with the surface through the, the meat or whatever it is that's being chopped. So that's a sort of contact and survival. It's a different... It, it's. Um, 
the organisms haven't attached there actively. They've just been put there and then they're surviving. And we call that attachment at a solid air interface. But if you allow the organisms to grow in a surface that's got liquid in it, at a solid liquid interface. We call that a biofilm. And again, organisms are very happy to do that. They'll stick onto a surface and then grow. Um, so in a roundabout way, um, they'll, they, they'll stick onto anything, really, and, and it's trying to reduce their ability to stick. The other thing with biofilms, if you think about catheters or contact lenses or dentures, any sort of plastic that you might implant in the body, the first thing that will stick to those materials is um, organic molecules from the liquid around them. So it might be saliva or tear fluid or urine, urinary proteins, and then the bacteria will stick to that. So the biofilm will form on top of that sort of conditioned surface too. Thank you, Joe. Um, also, we've got a question here for you, Sani. This is from Rolly Mandebro who says... If we discover a cure for MRSA by whatever means, won't we just end up with a bacterium that's resistant to whatever our cure is and it's something worse? Well, not really. Bacteria are quite clever, as we all know, but the issue is, provided we keep on developing new antibiotics, we'll be a step ahead of uh, of the organism. Um, I, I don't believe we, can, we should just stay back and say, well, they're probably winning anyway, Let's let's leave them. Numbers of MRSA cases are going down, aren't they? Now. Yes. yes. Why, why do you think that is? Well, it, it's partly because of uh, intervention measures that have come in over the last few years. For instance, we're putting less in, in, intravascular devices in nowadays. We're taking much more care when we're putting in plastic devices. Um, at the first sight, sign of an infection, these plastic devices are taken out. And it's probably the main reason why catheter-related bloodstream infections, particularly MRSA, has gone down. So better scrutiny and better practices to get rid of them. Thank you very much. That's Dr Sally and you. Right, well, that's it for this week. We've run out of time, so I have to say a very big thank you to Vanessa Sperandio, who you heard at the beginning of the programme, Joe Verin from Manchester Metropolitan, Jerry Peer from Harvard, and Sani Elliott, who was just there answering that question, and, of course, to our wonderful production team, who are Tom Simkins, Ben Valsler and Dave Ansell, and also Mera Synthalingam and Diana O'Carroll. Now, next week, very exciting, we're going to look at the age-old problem of why we look older and crumblier as we get older. So if you can join us, then please do, and send any questions about ageing to chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. 